Our Father, we are a people who are convinced that that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Only that which is infused of your spirit is is lasting and is righteous. Father, we are people who have been born of the Spirit, and now we ask that you will prompt us to walk by the Spirit. So indwell us, so fill us, that we might be a people who walk according to righteous paths, having been prompted and led and and invited there by the Spirit's wooings. Our Father, uh, it is a delight to sing of your faithfulness. We are a people who are, every one of us, illustrations of that faithfulness. That is not to say that we have not cried ourselves to sleep at night. It is not to say that we have not borne great grief and great burden. But in the midst of all of that, we have discovered that you are true to your word, that you've never made a promise that you've broken, And that your promises are more real than are our emotions. And so we pray that you will grant us grace to become a people who live according to your promises. Our Father, for those who limp in here emotionally this morning, I pray that you will ready their hearts to feast upon your word. I pray that they have already been able to Uh, Draw great encouragements from singing alongside the people of God. Might all that we have done here thus far remind them of who they are and whose they are. For others, Father, who uh, come in here in a fairly broad place in their roads, I pray that you would invite them as well to be reminded that all that we have we have via a gift that it is you that has prompted or allowed our mountains to stand strong but if you choose to hide your face those mountains will crumble and so father we recognize from first to last from beginning to end we are ultimately and completely dependent upon you but father our delight is that we're dependent upon you a god of all mercy a God of all grace, a God who who refuses to be angry with his people and does so again and again and again. Father, draw near. Draw near to each of us today. And might might we be able to leave with a sense that we have been in that place where fullness of joy is found, your very presence. We ask, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Acts, chapter 9. Acts, chapter 9, at verse 32. And you follow in your copies as I read through the end of that chapter. Acts, chapter 9, at verse 32. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through the all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, 
Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the windows, the widows stood by him, weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many people and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. The grass withers. And the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. The Aeneid by Virgil. Remember that? Remember studying it in high school or college? Um, It was Caesar Augustus who... um, chose Virgil to write this epic poem that would celebrate the origins and the glories of Rome. And uh, as his hero, Virgil chose a mythical character by the name of Aeneas, who uh, was a survivor of the Trojan War and led a group of survivors uh, out of Troy westward across the Adriatic into Italy to found a a new empire or to build a new place to live. On the way, he made a brief stop at Carthage where he ran into the queen. It's either Ditto or Dido. It's D-I-D-O. And um, there, um, that romance became one of the most celebrated uh, romances in all of, of Western literature. Now, why is that important? Well, because um, the name Aeneas, who was the hero of the Aeneid, the very prototype of all Roman heroes henceforward, the name Aeneas is a Greek name. If not Greek, certainly Latin, but it's definitely not a Hebrew name. And it's very unlikely that Aeneas, the man that we meet in verse 33, it's very unlikely that Aeneas was in any way a Jew. He he was a Gentile. Very, very likely with a name like Aeneas. 
He was a Gentile. Uh, and as the story uh, unfolds, we'll find out a little bit about his condition. But why is that important? Well, it's important because Dorcas is um, very likely a Jewess, a converted Jew. In fact, in the text, she's called a disciple. Um, but uh, she is a woman known for her good works, very probably a woman of some means, uh, to be able to do all that she did uh, for the, the Christian church. You know, you almost would be tempted to conclude that Dorcas had earned her miracle because of the lifestyle that's described there in the text, that she made all these things for all of the disciples, etc. And uh, in, in all of us is that, is that myth uh, that we are just heartily committed to, that uh, if you live right, things go right. You know, uh, in The Sound of Music, there is, um, there's that one scene where he finally figures out that he's in love with, the, uh, with, the, uh, with uh, Julie Andrews. Um, and um, he sings that song. In fact, they sing it. But uh, he sings, Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something. Because this wonderful thing has happened to me, and the reason that it's happened to me is because I did something good. That's one of those myths that goes deep into our psyche. That if I do good, I'll get good. Well, um, that's not exactly how grace operates, and we will uh, see that in a few minutes. But it's certainly not the story of Aeneas. Um... You find him as a paralytic, and having been that way for eight years, not a whole lot of good that he's done. And in that story, certainly we don't find God being coaxed into action by uh, by the amount of his merit uh, or the amount of the good deeds that he may have done. Dorcas was impressive. Aeneas wasn't. Dorcas was a converted Jew. Aeneas was an unconverted Gentile. But it's, but this much they, they do, they both have in common. They both have great need. Uh, both are very ill and, and have no chance of producing any kind of self-made remedy. Their situations are hopeless and entirely incurable. In fact, as you read, Dorcas is dead. But there's um, one more name that's mentioned in this story. He's mentioned right at the last. His name is Simon. And, and he seems healthy enough now, doesn't he? We're certainly not told anything about any illness that Simon has, but not so fast. Um, Simon was a tanner. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was an occupation that was considered by Judaism to be unclean because he was constantly dealing in the skins of dead animals. In fact, uh, strict Hindus, even today, won't have anything to do with the leather made good. And if you were a tanner, you were required by rabbinic law to build your house at least 50 cubits outside the city uh, limits. And if you um, happen to be 
engaged to a young woman who did not know your occupation, and then she discovered it only later, that betrothal was immediately voided because of um, his occupation. It's kind of like um, uh, the guy who um, owned Danny's here in Shelby County. He, unfortunately, is behind bars right now. But, I mean, uh, um, if you have found out as a set of parents that your daughter was, um, you know, engaged to the owner of Danny's, it might somewhat upset you as, as a parent. Well, uh, Simon faced that kind of rejection. In fact, if anybody um, uh, uh, was so stupid as to uh, agree to marry him, she could be immediately released from that obligation once she found out what it was that Simon did for a living. You do what? Well, let's, um, let's pause for a moment for a review. There's Aeneas, who is a Greek. He's paralyzed and had been paralyzed for eight long years. <clears throat> and as a result of his being paralyzed, he is reduced to, um, to begging. <laughs> a paralyzed Greek beggar. Not a real up-and-comer in, uh, in the societal uh, ladder. <clears throat> then there's Dorcas. On the other hand, and uh, she's a nice lady, um, hard worker, um, made lots of contributions to the uh, the good of the church. Uh, she's a Jewess. Um, she's the kind of woman that you would want to see or probably saw as the president of the Garden Club and uh, always getting awards for the volunteer of the year. Unfortunately, Dorcas is dead. <laughs> Again... Not a whole lot to um, to offer uh, from the inside of her casket. And then there's Simon, a societal pariah. Um, the uh, his friends uh, always wanted to know what is it that you do to smell like that? Uh, you do what? Um, not somebody exactly you want your daughter to marry, and. Um, he's somewhat real hard on property values when he moves into the neighborhood. Not exactly you, somebody you want living next door to you, being involved in the kind of work that he does. Now, there's one other person that's mentioned in this text that I read this morning. His name is very familiar to us. His name is Peter. And boy, does Peter ever have a skeleton in his closet. Having committed only months earlier what is considered a moral atrocity. He, um, he's been the subject of more than one uh, juicy pieces of gossip because of what he did, you know, what Peter did. So here's what you got in this text. You've got one Greek, three Jews. You've got one woman, 
three men. You've got one who's sick, one who's dead, one who's unacceptable, and one who has a moral failure. You have one leader, three followers. You have one who does good work, one who does bad work, and one who does no work. You have a uh, one who gets converted and one who is already converted, or three who are already converted. What you have here in this brief um, 12 verses is pretty much the whole uh, demographic gamut. You have the gender outsider. You have the social outsider. You have the moral outsider, the national outsider, the religious outsider, and the economic outsider. Their, their stories, indeed, vary. But um, they range in their stories from the morally bankrupt to the physically bankrupt. They are people that are some, or at least one, was socially acceptable, whereas others were socially unacceptable. They uh, uh, range from the hardworking to the non-working, from the well-heeled to the penniless, from the religiously approved to the religiously rejected. Their stories are fascinatingly different, and yet um, there are some ways that all of their stories are alike. Um, and though, as I said, the stories are vastly different, there's some things that all four of these people have in common. And I want you to see at least a couple of three things that these, these four people have in common. First of all, their first piece of commonality, they are all very needy. Aeneas has problems, Dorcas has problems, Simon has problems, but in one sense, ladies and gentlemen, Peter has problems bigger than any of the other three. In terms of spiritual performance, Peter comes in last, fourth out of four. Dorcas did all those charitable deeds and and Simon exercises a piece of sweet hospitality. Poor Aeneas doesn't know any better. He's bedridden. But Peter, oh, walk on the water, Peter. Oh, speak before you think, Peter. Oh, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter. That Peter is a miserable, moral failure. And his failing came in the teeth of three years of having lived with the Lord of glory. You know, some of these people in this story might have some excuses for their poor, poor, poor performance, but not Peter. How could you possibly excuse what Peter did in the light of all of his advantages? And yet... Here's this story, and Peter is once again out front, apparently forgiven, and is very useful, being very useful 
to the King of Kings. You know, my friends, anybody who is here this morning who has blown it badly, and there's a skeleton in your closet that you don't want the rest of us to know, if I were you, I would grab hold of this Peter guy and I wouldn't let him go. If you for one second have ever cratered emotionally, if you... are at the bottom of the barrel emotionally, then um, then I've got somebody I'd like for you to meet. If you think that you have somehow so failed the Lord, that abortion that you had, and you you knew better, that pregnancy that you uh, created, don't have the slightest idea where that child is. That affair that your spouse never found out about. If you somehow feel that there is such a skeleton in your closet that you can never possibly move beyond it, I got somebody I'd like for you to meet. You know, um, there was a tragedy in the city of Memphis just recently, about a week ago, where a young man, uh, barely old enough to have his driver's license, did something that was pretty stupid and um, crossed over into the other lane, had a car accident killed his 12-year-old brother. And this poor young guy doesn't want to live anymore. I understand that. But if you've got something that bad, then there's somebody that you need to get to know. You know, the rest of these three, um, they'd be worth meeting uh, too, but... um, They would all have stories that would tell you about their enormous need. Because the one thing that those four people have in common is the enormity of their need. Now, here's the punchline. You do too. You have something that is huge. I'm not saying it's a moral failure. I'm just saying you are a very needy person. Our problem is we're just not as aware of it as these four were. And what we have done is develop some kind of intricate system by which we can ignore the fact that we are needy. It's hard for us to to admit, particularly you male types... But underneath all the hoopla and underneath all the success and all the prosperity, you know that there is something missing. And the more, the interesting thing, the more successful you get, the bigger the need becomes. 
Because you kept thinking that if you just could arrive at a certain plateau, that would address the need. And you've arrived at that plateau, and the need is still there. You're just as needy as anybody in this story, ladies and gentlemen, and so am I. The one thing that we all have in common, our nationalities might be different, our stories might be vastly different, but one thing I know we have in common, we're all needy. You know, one of the things that you see in the Psalms, and I invite you to go read them, is how often the king of Israel describes himself as poor and needy. The king of Israel, ladies and gentlemen, describes himself as poor and needy. So are these four people, and so are you, so am I. In all of our stories, at the center of it is giant need. The, the second thing that these people have in common that I, that I hope that God will give me utterance to communicate properly is that I want you to notice that in none of these instances do any of these people um, meet any kind of conditions so that they can get healed. Was that clearly said? That is, nobody walks up to Aeneas' bedside and says, Now, if you'll just pray some more, and if you'll just give alms, and if you'll just da-da-da-da-da, you can find uh, physical health too. Nobody says that to Dorcas. She couldn't have heard it if they had. I can't say that much about, um, uh, about Simon because I don't know that much about Simon. The only three things I know about him is that I know where he lived, I know what he did for a living, and I know that he exercised the gift of hospitality. But these other three stories, ladies and gentlemen, all unite to, to um, communicate this message. They did nothing, nothing to coax God into intervening in their very needy situations. Dorcas is a dead woman. There's not a whole lot of, that a dead woman can do to restore life. In fact, there's not a whole lot that Peter can do for her, but be a conduit of the grace of God to her. You know, at the center of Peter's story, as well as Dorcas and Aeneas, at the center of his story is Jesus Christ's willingness to forgive him. Ladies and gentlemen, think about that story. Think about that story when uh, Peter has betrayed Jesus and, and denied him three times and all that business. Think about it. Who was it that sought whom? Do you ever get any statement in the scripture about Peter realizing the enormity of his crime, chasing after the risen Christ, hoping that he will just please, begging him to forgive him? No. Jesus invites him to take a stroll down the beach. And in this conversation, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? <clears throat> Jesus communicates to Peter that he's forgiven. There's not a whole lot that Dorcas can do, and there's not a whole lot that Peter can do, and there's not a whole lot that Aeneas can do. He's paralyzed. And I'm here to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, there ain't much you can do either. 
Nobody has ever said, listen to the gospel. Here's the gospel. The gospel is, if you will do this, if you will do that, if you will do the other, if you will clean yourself up somehow morally, if you'll have some kind of moral reform so that you can be acceptable in the sight of God, once you get that accomplished, come on to Jesus and he'll accept you. And I think there's countless millions that are staying away because they think that they're not, they're not quite clean enough. Let, uh, can I say this again? In the story of Peter, who sought whom? In the story of Adam and Eve, who sought whom? Nobody, nobody cleans up before they come. The point, your condition and mine has only one solution, ladies and gentlemen. And you and I are not part of that solution. In fact, all the contribution you make is your sin. The Bible says that your supposed so-called good works are nothing more than a collection of filthy rags. And by the way, does everybody here in this very polite audience realize what that filthy rag business is? Mm, I'll spare you. I'll spare you the image. If you need to know, get me after the service. But the whole idea that all this supposed effort on my part to make myself right in the sight of God is a pile of uh, let's just call them soiled rags no uh, ladies and gentlemen it is only Christ who heals wounds that were inflicted by sin and you know what there is no greater sickness than the one that produces the delusion that you don't need what Christ has to offer. My friend, listen to me. If you are here today thinking that you are not in the need of Jesus Christ, your condition is far worse than you ever dreamed. There is no sickness like the one that produces the delusion that I do not need what Jesus Christ has, the, has to offer. You know, to have cancer is bad enough. But to have cancer and not want to go to the doctor, that is insanity. You know, there, there are numerous solutions to cancer. But there is only one solution to the damage that sin has done to our souls. Only one. And I want you to know, you ain't it. The solution is to be found in Christ Jesus, in Him alone. Not only is Christ our only solution, but no matter what your story is, ladies and gentlemen, whether it be uh, paralysis or rejection or moral failure, 
you don't have to clean up before you come. The cleaning up happens after you get there, get here. After the embrace has been extended and forgiveness is obtained, then, then the cleaning up process begins because of the power of the Holy Spirit that now dwells within you. So, ladies and gentlemen, in response to this story, two things. First of all, we're all needy. Number two, nobody does anything to contribute to their getting better. The solution is to be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Two more things and I'm finished. Second, or thirdly, did you notice in the text, healed people act healed. Look at verse 35. So all who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Look at verse 42. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. That is, as a result of what took place in the lives of Aeneas and and Dorcas, a, a number of other people found the Lord Jesus Christ as a result of watching healed people act healed. Healed people who get healed act differently than when they were sick. Looking like and acting like someone that Jesus healed impacts onlookers. Grace is visible. And do you know why people are attracted to it, ladies and gentlemen? They're attracted to it because they're sick too. And many of them know it. Many of them know that there is this gaping wound that is gashed deeply into their souls. And then to see that somebody has found a solution to their need creates all kinds of impact on a bunch of non-Christian onlookers. Healed people act differently. They act differently than when they were sick. Fourthly, the message of the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, as it, as it relates to this story, the message of the gospel, at least in part, is this. No condition, none, no condition is hopeless. Neither paralysis nor death can prevent the victory of grace. Let no amount of spiritual sickness keep you from Jesus Christ. I'm sorry you failed so miserably. It would be better if you hadn't. But it doesn't change the fact that you are beyond the sweep and the influence and the power of grace to make you different. You know, ladies and gentlemen, the gospel is far better news than we ever dreamed. The gospel is the story that tells us that we're far more wicked than we ever dreamed. But it also tells us that we are far more forgiven and far more accepted than we ever dared hope. I want to read you a little story in closing. And um, there is a word in here that, um, you know, if your children hear me say this word, they'll, they'll, say, they'll run home to mommy and daddy and they'll say, did you hear what the preacher said? He said a curse word. So I'm not going to say this word because I don't want to damage your children and I want your children to know that I don't use this word. It's just in a quote. And I'm going to substitute something that will be a little bit more acceptable. 
to a parent who's trying to wrestle with his children about about clean talking. So understand, it's I'm, I'm going to subtract a little bit of its impact, but it's a great statement. It's a it came from a guy, and this is the second time that I've quoted him, and I don't know who he is. I'm going to have to find out who this guy is. His name is Robert Farrar Capone. He says this. The gospel is not a question to be answered or a puzzle to be solved. It is a paradox to be relished. A wild, outrageous secret to be astonished at and then snitched to the world as the greatest joke ever told. The mystery of Christ is a festival of weakness and foolishness on the part of God. Something that makes no more sense than the square root of minus one. Something that is deaf to our cries for intelligible explanations, but that works when it is put into the equation of the world. Something that can only be marveled at because it is such preposterously good news. The Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, has one word for us. God has upped and done the darndest thing, or to get the direction and adjectives right, God has downed and done the blessedest thing we could have ever not thought of. Because, ladies and gentlemen, who would have ever thought of this gospel? Who of us would have ever dreamed because, ladies and gentlemen, it's basically backwards. It operates backwards from childhood on. We have, we have been told that we are to earn our place in the sun. We have been told that I must have done something good. Or otherwise, good things wouldn't have happened. We have been told again and again and again that good performance is rewarded and bad performance is punished. And so how then do we suddenly receive something as wonderful as heaven? Something as wonderful as the message of this gospel that says performance does not matter whatsoever. That's not easy to, that's not easy to, to swallow. But the fact is, the gospel reverses. Everything about the natural order of performance. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I say to you, no condition, no matter how bad it's been, no matter how many skeletons hang in your closet, no condition is beyond the victory of grace. Victory, uh, grace promises that all of our sin is swallowed up in all of His righteousness. We're a needy people. There's no conditions to being cleaned up. When we get cleaned up, we act like healed people. And we tell them that no condition is hopeless. That's quick. Our Father, I do pray that you will remind the, the, the people of God here that, uh, that there is nothing beyond the, um, the hope of the gospel.
that what we have is, is a message that promises things to us that, that go beyond any kind of um, normal and natural and, and human contrivance. That what we preach is a message that promises not simply that we are forgiven, not simply that we are on our way to heaven. It tells us that we have been brought into union with Jesus Christ, and thus we are safe. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that the experience of these four people in this text will be a great encouragement and stimulation for others who sit here who are in many ways just like them. Our stories vary, but our soul's need is the same for Christ and Him crucified. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.